to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. 欢迎来到费正清中国研究中心的哈佛论中国播客。The Fairbank Center is a world-leading center on China at Harvard University. China has a long and complex history of interacting with foreign thinkers. In the post-Maoist era, the Chinese leadership solicited foreign economists in order to curate China's path towards reform and opening up. These little-understood partnerships are the subject of Julian Gavert's new book, Unlikely Partners: Western Economists in the Making of Global China, from Harvard University Press. This project developed out of Julian's senior thesis here at Harvard in 2013, supervised by the Fairbank Center's own Professor Eris Manella. Julian's currently a Rhodes Scholar and DPhil candidate in history at the University of Oxford, and we're delighted to welcome him back to Harvard to discuss his book. So I started by asking him the question all China scholars get asked. What first got you interested in China? I started studying Chinese actually when I was a kid.、Uh, I found a Chinese folk tale in my local library that really captured my imagination, and I read it. And I just thought it was amazing. I was eight years old, and I went home from the library and asked my parents if I could learn Chinese, and they were they were open to that.、Uh, so I started studying quite young, and then before coming to Harvard, I took a gap year and lived in Beijing. Uh, studied Chinese and also worked for time at the Chinese news magazine Caijing, which was the place where I actually first encountered a lot of the figures who would end up appearing in my book. Figures like Hu Jinian, the economist,、uh, who wrote a lot for Caijing at that time. And yeah, and then I came to Harvard and I knew that I wanted China to be at the center of my academic experience here. Were you able to include China、uh, in a lot of the curriculum? Yeah, so one of the one of the really wonderful things about、uh, my time at Harvard was that I was able to use my language skills and to include the study of China in classes that I took in a variety of different disciplines. And so I concentrated in history、uh, when I was here. And one of the reasons that I did that was that freshman year I took a seminar、uh, with David Armitage、uh, on intellectual history. And it was a very broad-ranging intellectual history class, but I wrote a paper for that class on China, and I realized that I could have this broad-gauge liberal arts education here while focusing on China,、uh, and that was why I ended up ended up concentrating in history,、um, though did take classes in in East Asian studies. While you were here,、uh, one of our faculty, Eris Mella, was your thesis advisor. How did you start to bring together、uh, this topic for your thesis that then eventually turns into your book? So I knew from the beginning, as I mentioned, that、uh, I wanted to look at the reform era, look at the period after Mao died in 1976, and try to understand it more deeply. But I didn't know exactly what the angle I would take would be. I thought about maybe studying. Uh, the interest in European philosophy or American philosophy, but freshman year I took the big introductory lecture that、uh, Bill Kirby and Peter Bull teach on an overview of Chinese history. And in that class, I realized that the Reform period was really ripe for historical investigation. That they talked about how there were new sources and、uh, a lot of exciting work to be done. Uh, but it was clear that the scholarship of that period was really just beginning from a historical perspective,、uh, despite the amazing work that political scientists and economists and sociologists had done on the period. And so, then sophomore year, I took 
a seminar on the history of economic thought with Emma Rothschild, a uh, professor in the history department here. And it was in that class that I really realized for the first time that I could bring together these interests in the history of ideas and of economic thought in particular, and this interest in the reform period. I wrote a paper in that class on something called the dual track price system, which was a transition device that the Chinese government developed in the 1980s, working with Chinese economists to uh, allow the planned economy and the new market economy to coexist. So what was fascinating to me about that as I started to dig into it was that I saw these names of economists from abroad as I looked at the source material and I realized that there was actually a, a big story here that, that hadn't been told. It wasn't just the story of the dual track price system or any specific reform policy. It was the story of a very broad engagement with economic thinkers from all around the world who in many cases went to China and provided the Chinese with concrete economic policy advice. And that was the subject of my senior thesis and then now is the subject of my book. So throughout the book, obviously the topic is how um, there are unlikely partners and partnerships between um, foreigners, especially it seems that a lot of uh, Eastern Europeans um, taking over from previously what were Soviet advisors and to some extent some Americans. As you were researching this book, to what extent were previous conversations focused around how foreigners had come to China and bought these ideas and China copied them and that's what sparked the economic miracle, as opposed to China actively seeking change and maybe being quite selective and picking and choosing which models to borrow? So there's a much older model as we think about China's interaction with the West and with the outside world more broadly. In that model, foreign advisors, mainly missionaries, went to China to evangelize, to promote their ideas and to gain converts, to persuade the Chinese that their way of doing things, the Chinese way of doing things was wrong and that this Western or foreign way of doing things was right. So Jonathan Spence, you know, wrote this book that surveys those attempts from missionaries to military advisors called To Change China, and that's very much the model that we have, and I think of that as the sort of missionary model. But as I started to dig into the kind of economic advisors who went to China in the 1980s, I immediately realized that these people were not operating in the missionary model. They were in many cases, yes, evangelizing for ideas that they believed in, but they knew that they were in China at the invitation of Chinese economists or Chinese officials. And you might think about what they did much more like a consultant. It's much more demand-driven. That's a phrase that one of the really important figures in this period, who was a World Bank official named Edwin Lim, who was the World Bank's first chief of mission in China, it's a phrase that he uses, demand-driven, that the goal was to respond to the needs and the specific questions of the Chinese rather than to go over there and tell them what to do uh, and then hope that they would copy or mimic uh, exactly what you, what you laid out. And I think that's really true. Uh, there are certainly figures who went hoping to gain converts of a sort. I think of Milton Friedman, whose story runs through the book as one example of somebody who really was there to evangelize in his own mind. Uh, but then there are many other people ranging from 
American economists like Dwight Perkins, Gregory Chow, James Tobin, who went to provide technical guidance as well as big picture input. And then the Eastern Europeans you refer to, uh, whether Oda Schick or Janusz Kornai, who were really going to put together a set of new ideas about what a mixed system combining land economy and markets could look like. It was, it was driven by the needs of the Chinese and it was happening on China's terms. Yeah, and indeed you have a, a brilliant story in the book about Milton Friedman going to China with this idea of evangelizing and running into some serious resistance and indeed you said it was quite fractious, the visit. Right, so Milton Friedman went, went three times and his first visit in 1980 uh, was a pretty remarkable thing. You know, the U.S. and China had just normalized their relations. Uh, and so he was one of the very earliest academic visitors to go from the United States. And you might think Milton Friedman is a real, you know, free market fundamentalist uh, in, the, in the truest sense. He was world famous at that time, but not just for his contributions as an economist, which were primarily focused on consumer behavior uh, and on stagflation. But he was famous because he was a really fierce proponent of the absolute virtues of the free market. So what is this person doing in uh, China as a guest of the Chinese Communist Party researchers in 1980? Well, the answer, it turns out, is that he was brought over because he was an expert on inflation. And the Chinese who invited him didn't really know about his public persona, uh, but they wanted an expert who could help them figure out how to open up the economy without allowing inflation to, to soar. Of course, they didn't quite get what they bargained for because Friedman came and he did what he did wherever he went in the world, which was evangelize for the absolute benefits of free private markets. So yeah, that 1980 visit was, uh, was quite fractious, as you, as you put it. And uh, it was, uh, it's a sort of fascinating little insight into the way that in the early 80s, Chinese economists were really eager to get the best ideas from around the world, but sometimes they didn't have the 360 degree visibility, uh, and as a result, they got a bit more than they bargained for. So they bit off a bit more than they could chew. With well, they honestly, they handled it. I mean, they, they certainly held their own. I mean, in, in that story, uh, you know, Friedman does his usual, his usual speech, and then the next day, his hosts come to his, and this is this is all from, from Friedman's papers and memoirs, um, his hosts come to his hotel room and tell him that, you know, he's wrong, that uh, capitalism has terrible internal contradictions, and that he needs to understand the historic achievements of the Chinese Communist Party, etc. So they give him their stump speech too. Uh, so again, you sort of see that they're in charge and that they're having these visits occur uh, to the extent possible on the terms that they want. But yeah, sometimes it's not a perfect case where they want to hear what, what, uh, what the visitor has to say. Sure, and I think that's a really important theme that you bring out in the book, is it's not just foreigners coming to China, but actually there's some really smart people on the Chinese side who kind of develop a sort of Chinese hybrid model. Um, and one of the people that you talk a lot about is Zhao Ziyang, who um, was ousted in, in 1989. Um, and seems to have sort of been written out of history. One of the, the really impressive parts of the book is how many people you interviewed um, and how many people you spoke to both in China and in the West um, to do this project. 
What, what were people in China's reactions when you told them that you specifically were interested in Zhao Ziyang? You know, this really is a China-centered story. As I thought about how to write this book, in line with my aversion to working in the older missionary model, I realized that the core part of this story was about Chinese reformers, Chinese economists and officials who were, as this country was opening up, they were the ones who were trying to design policies and figure out a direction for the country that would make China modern and wealthy and powerful. So I really focus in the book on them. And there are Western visitors who come and play a really central and dramatic role, uh, but the core narrative is the narrative of this particular set of people in China developing their ideas and this engagement is really happening on their terms. So one of the challenges as I thought about how to write a book that could do that was, well, it's much easier to get source material on Milton Friedman than it is on a senior Chinese economist. Uh, Friedman's papers are held at Hoover at Stanford uh, and James Tobin's papers are held at Yale, but uh, source material on China in this period is, is uneven and often difficult to obtain. So as I set about doing this, I did, as you said, interview a fair number of people in China and, and elsewhere in the world. Uh, that was one source of information. Uh, I was also able to get my hands on an uh, array of documents that shed a lot of light on Chinese economists and senior Chinese leaders, including the individual you just mentioned, Zhao Ziyang. So Zhao Ziyang was first premier of China from 1980 to 1987, and then became uh, general secretary until 1989, when he was ousted because he opposed the use of martial law uh, against the student protesters gathered at Tiananmen Square and around the country. Zhao was really a uh, written out of the history of this period. When he was removed from his official positions and placed under house arrest for the rest of his life until he died in 2005, and one of the real gaps in our understanding of this period centers on that absence of Zhao in the official record. So as I thought about, well, wow, I actually have an opportunity to not only write uh, about the history of these interactions with foreign thinkers, but to write about the policymaking and economic policymaking uh, at the elite level in China in this period. So one of the stories that the book tells and that I'm continuing uh, in my research now to work on is a story of that more fully represents the uh, elite politics of China in the 1980s by centering on Zhao. Anyone who lived through this period is aware of two things that are core arguments of my book. First, that there was tremendous engagement with foreign thinkers, and second, that Zhao Ziyang played a central role. Of course he played a central role. He was premier and general secretary. So the dominant reaction that I got when I talked to people and explained my project was, you know, it sounds, sounds relatively reasonable and, and, and uh, straightforward. Now certainly Zhao Ziyang is a very sensitive figure today in China, and unfortunately, there's a tremendous amount of material that scholars in China have and work that scholars in China could do, but because of the political sensitivities surrounding Zhao, that they're not able to. So my hope is that with this work, 
we can continue to move move the ball forward in understanding the elite politics of the period, and then Chinese scholars can take the mantle uh, in due course. One of my big arguments for why I do research, for example, on the lead up to 1990, is that that period of history, right before the collapse of a lot of communist regimes in Eastern Europe, is actually really pivotal to how the contemporary Chinese leadership thinks about how to enact policy decisions and um, sort of what drives them in many ways. Um, how do you approach people who say like, oh, well, why do you study the 1980s when it's so much more important to study what's happening now in China? So I actually believe that it's not so much an either or. The continuities are extraordinary. So there are continuities in terms of personnel. Uh, for instance, the fact that Zhou Xiaotuan, who's been the governor of the People's Bank of China for uh, now more, you know, well over a decade, uh, was very active and cut his teeth in the 1980s. Uh, there's the fact that so many of the officials who are ruling China today uh, have a similar story where they really, they really came up during the 1980s. But there's also the fact that the pivot points of debate are remarkably continuous. The core debates of the 1980s were all about the balance between the state and the market in the economy. And that remains the enduring and central theme of Chinese economic policymaking today. The system that came out of the 1980s, which is the socialist market economy, still governs China today. So to me, this is very recent history, but it's really contemporary history. It uh, is still very much alive. And frankly, many of the debates that are happening today, I think, are only intelligible if you understand the development of many of these individuals' ideas and of the society in which they're operating. So for all those reasons, I feel that studying the 1980s is, is a way of studying China today. Uh, and it's a very, at least I think, mutually reinforcing practice with scholars who are studying current events. Julian, thank you very much for coming today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. Thank you for listening to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. To listen to more interviews from leading scholars of China, check out the Harvard on China playlist at Harvard University's SoundCloud page.